I'd rather stop about it. Um, imagine if you can um, being in a rather small uh, meeting room in Kabul in the presence of the former president of Afghanistan, Rabani, who was a senior member of the High Peace Council. That meeting, um, at that meeting, it had been arranged that a senior figure from the Taliban would be greeted uh, and would be, uh, a conversation would get underway on reconciliation, bringing the conflict to an end. As Rabani leant forward to embrace the representative from the Taliban, the Taliban member detonated a bomb that was concealed in his turf. It tore apart not only the bomber, but also Rabani himself, killed and maimed several of the bystanders. The room was filled with choking smoke, and I think a lot of people at the time realised um, this was just another nail in the coffin of attempting to build peace in Afghanistan. It's very interesting that there has been, we were talking in the last session about literature, and there has been a significant rise in the amount of literature produced on Afghanistan after decades of neglect. Um, dominating studies, as we heard this morning, I'm not surprised uh, from John's work, but actually it was found that studies of the actual conflict of Afghanistan, indeed histories of conflict, mainly about Western intervention, uh, are very prevalent. There are a few on studies of development and reconstruction, fewer still on socio-cultural aspects of Afghan history and, uh, and its life, and very little, in fact, on peace and negotiation in Afghanistan with the result that the longevity of the conflict that we've seen since uh, really 1978 has given rise to a feeling that Afghanistan exemplifies this idea of perpetual war. Uh, There is no more peace, uh, no more state of war. We just live in this era where the two seem to go together, uh, this era of just continual violence. And we have seen a, a rise in um, unconventional methods of waging conflict. Uh, we don't have declaration of war, bans it's called today's in the Kemal of Leon, part of 1928. Instead, um, this strange, uh, constant wearing down uh, of uh, people, and resolve, uh, constant attacks on security forces, security forces losing their patience against uh, an enemy they can't really find. Now, um, I would suggest to you that actually, this is a bit problematic, this term perpetual war, um, that actually at the national level, uh, through Afghanistan's history, uh, there have been lots of civil wars, um, most of those don't get written about, uh, but actually greater success at uh, bringing the wars to a conclusion at that national level. On the other hand, at the local level, and we can describe what the local might be or argue about that later, but um, violence and sort of conflicts that was very, very common throughout Afghanistan's history. A lot of feuding, a lot of uh, what they would call inter or clan violence. I don't tend to use the word tribe personally uh, because of its connotations. But a lot of conflicts over fear, honour, and interest. Um, a lot of fighting over generations over narcotics. That's just reached a new apogee recently. And a lot of fighting over um, power over land people and revenue, or Zarzan and Zamin, as it's known in Afghanistan. But you're interested in what are the implications of all these conflicts at the local level uh, for peacemaking. 
Uh, well, um, I think there are three things that immediately spring to mind. One is that um, a war economy exists. We're just hearing from the last panel about how important that is. Money talks in war. Narcotics, um, government money, and aid injections of cash are the really big earners for Afghans today. And as a result, um, they tend to, in their own money, secure uh, conflict. The other alternative, of course, is for people to leave the country, and there are a large number, large proportion, I should say, of migrants now trying to reach Europe who are indeed Afghan. Um, there are more Pashtun Afghans live outside of Afghanistan today than actually live inside Afghanistan. The second area, in terms of implications straight away, to mention is, of course, legacies of violence. Um, there is a sort of habitus of violence now in, in parts of Afghanistan. Losses are very high, both in terms of property and lives. Uh, there's a great deal of dispossession. Critically, uh, for anyone who is interested in, the, in Afghanistan as a country, the old clan structures, the old hierarchies of the country, which had their own sort of way of, uh, of conflict resolution, have all been damaged by new ideological affiliations, but also, I have to say, by a scramble to control resources. And the third uh, element in terms of immediate implications of peacemaking is that um, although a lot of the interventionists, European or otherwise, who've come to Afghanistan have tried to find the mechanism for rebalancing power at a national level, uh, what's very striking when you speak to Afghans is that there is a desire for exclusive control. As one of them put it to me in our translation, he said, why should I share when we have suffered for so long? Um, and I think that uh, means that um, we have to kind of bear that in mind whether we talk about national peacemaking or local peacemaking. But here's, here's the thing, right? Here's the shtick that, uh, that I would give about this particular subject. And that is that um, the study of war in Afghanistan and the study of peace indicates that violence itself is a very important form of communication. Um, dialogue is a tradition in Afghanistan, it's true, uh, but violence is part of that dialogue not just after a war, but during it. And that's why perhaps so many people have come to the conclusion that war in Afghanistan is now perpetual. Let me explain a bit more about what I mean. If we were looking at some of the, refer back to some of the theory about peacemaking, uh, we know that there's a great deal of British literature written about you know, how difficult it is to get to the decision to negotiate in the first place. People like Barbara Walter, Moldowski and others, written about you know, whether that need, there has to be a stalemate, whether there has to be some sort of domestic pressure within the community. But we know that first step of deciding to talk is the most difficult. Secondly, um, people have spoken a lot in literature about prevailing conditions. There needs to be some sort of stalemate or some sort of um, moment, really, where people are ready, the rightness there is up, if you like, are ready to talk, ready to, to come to peace. And then there's been a lot of work, work done on what kind of peace terms need to be offered, how you implement, and then the design outcomes. So I'm not even going to remotely attempt to summarise that literature. Simply to say this, that um, if you study conflict as opposed to studying peace, you'll find that straight away um, actors want to negotiate from a position of strength. And that strength may be relative, of course, very localised, but they will all wish to get some kind of bargaining position um, clear before they start uh, what might be called proper peace talks. Um, violence is also common. 
uh, as a form, of, as a reciprocal form, um, in terms of upping the ante during negotiations, to assert some sort of localized control, uh, to signal your displeasure with a particular set of peace terms being offered, or indeed for reasons of prestige, which is incredibly important in the Afghan context. We also know that negotiation um, can be very insincere. Uh, it can be used to escape um, from defeat, uh, to buy time um, for some other uh, military effort, uh, and that's always there. And that while we talk a lot about third parties being important, particularly in the Afghan context, to um, bring war to an end, uh, I should just remind you in the context of Afghanistan that third parties are often spoilers, and you're going to hear a bit more in the next paper. Uh, about spoilers, uh, so I won't go any further with that one right now, but it's there anyway. There have been, um, there are, have been some opportunities since 2001 uh, to bring conflict in Afghanistan to an end. And I, again, there's a huge volume of stuff on here, I'm not going to go through it because it's very well established, but there's been interesting work done on peace councils and reconciliation efforts, which hopefully we can get to during the course of the day. It may be interesting to know that if, um, I've done a few interviews with uh, prisoners, uh, Taliban prisoners, and several themes come out very strongly. One is their anxiety over sins that they have committed against civilians that, quote, make us no better than the Americans, end of quote. Um, a great deal of concern about very corrupt leadership. We go on fighting because our leaders are corrupt. But also, uh, they've spoken about their reasons for ending conflict, why they came in, why they allowed themselves to be taken prisoner, because they were angry with the corruption of their own Taliban leadership. They talk about patriotism being more important than tribal, as we would say, they would say, form allegiance. That's kind of new interesting area. Um, and there's a lot more there, but just suffice to say, each of those three elements, sins, corrupt leadership, and the idea of patriotism, open up as many opportunities as they close down. There's also well-documented collusion between the uh, figures who work for the Afghan government um, and those who are um, anti-government fighters. Uh, that collusion, as I say, is very well-documented, very widespread, again, presents a, a fantastic new opportunity for uh, opening up dialogue and, and peace. But before we get carried away and think, ah, yeah, well, Rob Johnson's provided the answers for uh, peace in Afghanistan, let me just tell you what the scale of the problems are. Um, first of all, narcotics. Um, narcotics is the most important component now in sustaining the Afghan economy. Uh, it is incredibly destabilizing. Most of the conflict in Afghanistan, I put to you, over the last 20 years, has not been caused by Western interventionism or its resistance to it. Most of the conflict in Afghanistan is a drugs war. It's pure and simple. And I think once we realise that, we may have a, at least some chance in um, bringing this conflict uh, to an end. But what it does mean is that all the spoilers that we will encounter are all driven by what is going on within the narcotics industry uh, rather than actually what's going on in the uh, capital of Kabul. I think the other, um, another factor that's an uphill problem for us is that the government of Afghanistan um, cannot generate sufficient income to meet the costs of running its own country. And that humiliation of dependence helps to perpetuate the problem. A third area that a risk to uphill struggle for us is, is the agenda of Pakistan. We make ourselves deeply unpopular here, but I'm going to be brutally honest with you. Is that Pakistan for years has been pursuing a policy deflecting its own problems outside its own country into Afghanistan. 
it maintains links and has maintained links with many Pashtun uh, groups that are resistance groups and others now as well. And it does everything it can to suppress what it believes are Indian interests inside Afghanistan, if necessary, with violence. Now, I think the final and most important uphill struggle we have is the radicalizing effect of war itself. Acts um, of revenge, uh, anger, um, expected dividend once the foreigners have left, all of those are not helping at all. Very briefly, I just want to give you one quick update about what's going on in Afghanistan, regardless of all the international reconciliation efforts and so on. Essentially, it's this. It's the rise of Islamic State in Afghanistan, the so-called Khorasan Vilayet. At the moment, they are limited to just two districts in Nagarhar province, um, Achin and Batikot. Uh, but what we have seen over the last 12 months is the advent of Islamic State-style techniques of governance by huge numbers of executions, uh, the banning of various different uh, items like music, television, the visibility of women in society, and so on, fines for not praying, uh, and the ideology um, is one of um, waging war on the Taliban as well as the Afghan, Afghan government for not fulfilling the true Islamic mission. Uh, they feel that they're fighting against corruption um, and they have a great desire to tear down what they call the injustice of the Durand line. Now, we get very obsessed when we talk about Islamic State about their ideological position, not least because that seems to present a direct intellectual threat to the Western world and what we believe in here. But the reality of Islamic State, or I should say, Khorasan Vilayat in Afghanistan, is as a turf war over the control of heroin trafficking and production. It's also a group of disgruntled Taliban leaders who were losing support and decided to reinvent themselves and aligned to Islamic State to gain legitimacy. Atikullah Mahaz, for example, is one of those individuals. There are other members of the Pakistan Taliban, uh, Talik Khalifat, uh, TTP, and Lashkar Jangvi, who were disillusioned by the faltering of the international jihad and decided to improve their status by reinvigorating the conflict with a new name. What are the implications for peace in Afghanistan of the rise of Islamic State? Simply to say that um, because the Taliban had been uh, ordered to call off operations by Pakistani, ISI, and other officials against the Afghan government in June 2015, what, was, what happened was that it appeared for the certain fighters to be a direct threat to uh, the ability to continue the war economy and to fulfill their objectives. Some members of the Taliban therefore have splintered away and began to form. Uh, this new movement under uh, Emir Bakhtiar, uh, who is actually a Shinwari, so he comes from uh, his family from the Pakistan side of border. <coughs> um, their objective, as I say, is to control heroin refineries. And my forecast is therefore that whilst there may be peace overtures under Taliban leadership directed by Pakistan, more willing to negotiate in the capital Kabul. Uh, I expect a great deal more violence, particularly in the south and east of the country, as the Khorasan Vilayat or Islamic State tried to expand their influence uh, through the drugs um, trade of eastern and southern uh, Afghanistan. So let me wind up um, this, which is skimming the surface of a, a terribly important subject, uh, in my view, at the moment. We do know that um, whatever agreement is reached in the next few years, uh, in Afghanistan. Violence is almost certain to continue. 
Now, certain groups trying to renegotiate their position or seek legitimacy. Um, there will be a splintering of existing movements as some seek to continue a war from which they directly profit. I think there's a, a huge problem in the Afghan economy of underemployment, which the drugs industry continues to fulfill for them. And I think there are many, many groups who are eager to outflank any moderates who want to reach an agreement. This is not even to include the personal vendettas or Badal, the restorative justice system uh, that many people feel uh, is important. I think currently uh, this is an under-theorised area, this idea of continuous war and continuing war, uh, and I would call everyone who is working in the environment to uh, place some time and energy into this area of study. Um, I think the reason I've just highlighted just one group, this rise of Islamic State in Afghanistan, is because I think it illustrates something very important. Anger at the ideological sellout of some of the groups that have been fighting. Dissatisfaction with the outcomes of uh, any uh, Western withdrawal from Afghanistan. The need for legitimacy, uh, and crucially, of course, a turf war to control revenue, particularly, um, obviously, narcotics revenue. What the rise of Islamic State in Afghanistan indicates is that war is inherently escalatory. Um, and I think the critics of Western intervention um, perhaps didn't quite realize that while they were eager for Western forces to be withdrawn from Afghanistan, what happened was a premature withdrawal meant that the attempts to build the foundations of a new state, which had the best chance of facing down the narcotics industry, and creating legitimate livelihoods was ended too soon. War isn't just about algebra, uh, numbers, and resources. Um, it's also about uh, the diabetics, what people believe. It's about bionomics, it's about what people's needs are. And to my uh, colleagues in those who work on war, as opposed to those who work on peace, uh, the war um, studies people are always obsessed with the algebraic. But I would say let's not ignore uh, the bionomic and the diathetic, or the esoteric, egotistical, and synthetic elements of war. Thank you very much.